for one more trip to the circus. Yeah, well, we're going there whether you like it or not. So I've been in this series called The Family Circus, and I've been comparing the family to a circus. It's not much of a stretch, right? We know where the monkeys are. And uh, we know a lot what's going on with that. But what I've been talking about is how the, uh, you know, the circus traditionally was three rings, and there was three different events or, or activities going on at once. And the family was very much the same. It's not just one thing to have a family. You have to keep a lot of balls in the air, so to speak, or all three of these rings functioning together. And these three simultaneous rings, I told you, were relationship, responsibility, and recreation. Well, we finally made it to the third ring, which was recreation. So let me start with this, because I think the thing we need to remember about the circus is there's a lot of work that goes into it, a lot of trouble, and a lot of you know, distress, and all kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the whole point of the circus is to have fun, right? And I think the same is true with the family. There's a lot of stress, and a lot of work, and even tragedy that happens in families. I'm sure everyone has experienced that. But you know, it's the one place we should really enjoy ourselves, is the family. Now I have a very interesting biblical story to tell you today that maybe some of you aren't aware of. You know, we all know as Christians about the tithe. It was initiated in the book of, of Leviticus and you were supposed to take 10% of your income and you were to give it to the Lord's work. And most evangelical Christians understand that. But the Hebrews, the Jewish faith, actually had something called the second tithe. And it's in Deuteronomy 14. And here, here I'm going to show you how it is so you can see it in, in the Hebrew language. The first tithe was called the Maser Rishon. The second time, tithe was called the Maser Shine. And the Maser Shine is, is, is sort of a remarkable thing. And you find it in, in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And I'm not going to go into all the explanations of it except to say this. He said, okay, now you are to take an, another 10%. 10% of your, of your flocks and your sheep and, and your your, your grains, and then I'm going to read to you what he told you to do with it. And if you've never seen this before, it's going to be a revelation. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter 14. I'm just going to read verse 26. Here's what you're supposed to do with the second tithe. And the Hebrews did. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God and shall rejoice you and your household. Did you catch that? The second tithe, the pur purpose of the second tithe was this. Let me begin at the beginning. He says, you need to pay your tithe to the Lord, and then you need to pay your expenses, which would include your taxes to Caesar, right? Or in our case, Justin Trudeau. And, 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 and then you need to pay yourself. And you know, a lot of times people go through life and they don't actually set aside money for recreation. And he says that you may rejoice, you and your household. He literally tells us to set money aside for our family vacation. How cool is this? It's in the Bible. 
Now, I know a bunch of you are thinking, all right, Pastor Mark, a whole message on taking my family to Wally World two or three times a year. That is not where we're going today. Because we need to look at what the word recreation means. And you, you may or may not have picked up on that word, that it literally means recreation. And to recreate means to recreate. It's the same word. And it means to recharge, to refresh, to rejuvenate. And if we look at the story of God's creation, he spent the first six days creating the earth. And what did he do in the seventh day? Anybody remember? He rested. Was that because he was worn out? He wasn't worn out. He did it as an example for us. God doesn't get tired, the scripture tells us. But you know what? You do. And you need refreshing. And you need recharging. And you need recreation. And so then he instituted it for us. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to work six days a week. But on the seventh day, I don't want you working. I want you recreating with your family. You need to create all week long, whatever you're doing in your business and your farms or whatever. And then you need to recreate on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. And we have kind of misunderstood the essence of the Sabbath day. Even in Jesus' day, they didn't understand. They got mad at him when he healed on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? And this is what he said, and I want you to think about it. He said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And what they did was they took something, which was the Sabbath, which was meant to be a blessing, and they turned it into an obligation. And so what happened in the time of the Hebrews, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set aside 10% of your income because two or three times a year, you're going to have to travel to Jerusalem. And on the Feast of Tabernacles, you are actually going to live in tents outside of Jerusalem. There's, here's some pictures of it. They actually did this. And so you're going to need money for food, money for travel, and money for your tent. He sent them on a camping trip every year. And he told them to set money aside for camping. You know what I think about camping. I think camping's of the devil. But God actually, God actually invented it. I mean, who wants to sleep outside and pay money to do it? It seems ridiculous to me. But here's where we're going with this, is that what recreation is about, and the fact that the family's the place to do it, it's actually about more than just having a good time. And we need to recreate, have recreation on three levels, spirit, soul, and body. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes uh, this morning, and I'm going to talk to you about how do we recreate spiritually and soulishly and physically. And it should be in all three of those levels. So we're going to start with this for this first one. I'm going to spend most of my time on the soul today, by the way. But we don't want to neglect the spirit, because the spirit is one of the easiest things to become depleted. You, for you to become spiritually impoverished is the easiest thing in the world. And Jesus told us why. He said, it is the cares of this world and the desire for riches that quenches out the word of God. And it's so easy for us to happen. And we need to always be including spiritual refreshing within the family structure. It isn't a burden. It is part of our recreation. It should be spiritual recreation. And so Bible reading with your family and praying with your family and going to church with your family. Why is it that we have turned going to church into an obligation rather than a recreation, something we would want to enjoy? Now, I'm preaching to the choir because you're all here. But you know what? There's millions of Canadians who aren't here this morning because they have found every other kind of recreation but spiritual recreation. And the key is to encourage our kids to begin with that they would love church. And you know, uh, 
We do it even with our language. You say, come on, kids, hurry up. We have to go to church. We have to go to church? You should be telling them, if you don't get dressed, you don't get to go to church. We should flip this whole thing around, and we should turn it into something exciting. And I'll tell you, nowhere's got a better place, and I'm going to brag a little bit, no one's got a better place for kids than Church of the Rock. Have you been back in Kids Rock? Do you know we have a real time machine back there? Some churches have pretend ones. Ours real. You actually go back 2,000 years of time. It's so much fun. You should go walk through that, see what happens. So you end up in the first century temple. It's fantastic. And, and a lot of the kids just love to come to church here because it's so much fun. And a lot of them are dragging their parents. Come on, mom. We have to go to church. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> It's like this story of this uh, mother. She's waking up her son one morning and say, come on, son, wake up. It's time for church. He says, I'm not going to church today. I hate church. She says, what do you mean you hate church? She says, I hate everything about it. The services are too long. The, the sermons are boring. The music is terrible. And nobody likes me. Give me two reasons why I should go to church. She says, well, number one, you're 40 years old. And number two, you're the pastor. <laughs> Okay, that's a true story, and I, I'm, the, I'm the guy in that story. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you one quick story about how we instill spiritual principles into our kids at a young age and, and how exciting it can be. So I have a five-year-old grandson. I, my one daughter has three, three grandkids, or three kids, making me having three grandkids. And the eldest is a five-year-old, and he was saving money for something. I don't know, Lego set or something. And I don't know where a five-year-old gets money. I guess they steal it. I'm not sure. But anyway, somehow through birthdays and Christmas and whatever, he had gained $15, and he was ready to make his big purchase, whatever it was. And then his mother said, okay, now you need to take 10% of that and tithe and give it to the Lord. And he's looking at her totally perplexed. He's five, right? He spent all these months gathering this money. And then she says, so we're going to take $1.50, which is 10%, and we're going to give it to Jesus. And he didn't want to do it. <laughs> he's just like you. <laughs> he, he didn't want to give it up. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not giving that. And so, so she, she explained it to him. She said, now this is what happens. When you give this to Jesus, he's going to give it back to you. She, he says, when? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then she says, well, you don't know. You just have to wait and find out. And then he says, how? How is he going to give it back to me? I mean, kids like five, they're pretty smart, eh? And so she said to him again, we're just going to have to see how and when. And we just wait. And when it happens, I'll point it out to you. So he reluctantly paid his tithe. And then a few weeks later, they went on holidays and they went to the West Edmonton Mall. And uh, they were doing the different things at the mall. And they were spending several days there. And on the last day, they were standing outside of Galaxy Land. And Galaxy Land is where they have kids' rides. And they were looking, and the price to send your kids in there is $50 a kid. They're three and five years old, and it was $50 each. And so they thought, we're not doing that. We're not spending that kind of, we're not paying $150 to send the kids into Galaxy Land. And so they decided they weren't going to do it. And so they were just standing there talking, and this woman comes running up to them and says, 
I saw you yesterday, and, and I wanted to give you something. She says, we were going to go into Galaxy Land, but we've been called away, and we have three tickets, and we've been looking for someone to give them to, and we saw you standing there with your kids. Would you like the tickets? And they said, would we? <laughs> and this woman gave them the tickets and left, and three of them went into Galaxy Land, $150 worth of free tickets, and they pointed it out to their son and says, this is what happens when you die. <laughs> you all did the math on that, right? It's a hundredfold return. How good is this story? How good is God that he would send a, a lesson like that to a five-year-old kid, right? And that's why my grandkids love church. <laughs> So the first area of recreation is spiritual recreation. We talk about that every week, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it. I want to talk today about soul recreation. Now, what is the soul? It's the mind, the will, and the emotions. And you know what the scripture says? It talks as much about the soul as it does about the spirit. And James says it this way. Actually, it was John that said this. He said, I pray that you would prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers and soul prosperity, soul health, and soul recreation is so important. And let me show you the flip side of this because the scripture talks more about soul health and emotional health than most people realize. So look at this. I'm going to throw this up on the screen. This is Proverbs 20, 12, 25. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety and depression. How much about anxiety and depression are we hearing these days? You know what, we just went through a global health pandemic, but we are still in an emotional pandemic. We are still in a place where people are racked with emotion, uh, anxiety and depression. And one of the most worrisome things to me is how it is affecting the young people. I wanna, I wanna show you a graph, look at this graph here. And this is showing uh, uh, kids 12 to 17, 18 to 25, and those over 26 years old, the blue line. And this is the number of young people having depressive episodes per year, at least one per year, and uh, the 26-plus-year-olds the are flat. They're not increasing much. Look at the, look at the 12 to 25-year-olds that's going through the roof. Now, you can't tell me that this is strictly a medical condition. There is something going on in our society, and we talked a lot about that last week with the influences of our world, that is producing anxiety, depression, suicide within young people. There's something seriously broken in our culture. And if I could give you more evidence on this, not that you need it, when we look at the prescription drug use of anti-anxieties and anti-depressions, it's going through the roof. I mean, look at this, look at this chart here. Uh, again, look at these age groups. Uh, you've got 10% uh, of, of, of people in certain age groups that are on anti-anxieties. Look at the next one. These are antidepressants. Why is this going through the roof? Why is this in increasing every single year? And, you know, I understand. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I know, I'm not judging anybody if you're on any of these drugs. I'm just saying this. Surely there's got to be a better way. Surely there is a different cause as to why we're full of anxiety and depression, and certainly a different cure than to merely going on drugs. Are we gonna end up all on drugs at some point? Are we gonna end up all on anti-anxieties and anti-depressions? Or is there a better way to deal with this? Now, I believe there is. And of course, 
you know, sometimes, you know, pastors will say, well, you just need to pray about that and you won't be so anxious. Or you just need to pray more or worship more and you won't be depressed. And well, a lot of people have tried that and that hasn't totally helped. Uh, and it will help. Don't, I'm not saying it won't help. I'm just saying it's more complicated than that. Where are the root causes? Why are we so full of anxiety? Why are we so emotionally racked? And there's reasons for it. And here's how I like to explain it, and I've used this for many years, that I think every single person has an emotional tank. Imagine that you've got this fuel tank of emotions. And we all know what it's like to be emotionally full, don't you? where you're just sort of overflowing, your cup runneth over, and you're just in a good mood, and you're in a good place, and, and you're spreading good cheer to other people, and you all know what it's like and feels like to be emotionally depleted, where you've got nothing left, and you're just done, and you're just frayed thin, and the slightest little conflict throws you off the edge. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay, you all know what I'm talking about. So I think the bigger question is, then what was it that drained that tank and what is it going to take to fill that emotional tank? So here's the illustration I use. I have a visual for this. And there's your emotional tank. And here's what I've discovered, is that your emotional tank drains quicker than it fills. How many think that's probably true? I mean, it's harder to fill your emotional tank. You could drain it almost instantly. You can turn that valve and gush that thing out in no time. And so let's look on the right side. These are the things that drain tanks. It's not an exclusive list. There's more to this. Uh, but I've thrown a few things up there. So conflict, stress, criticism, that's a big one. Disappointments, fatigue or lack of sleep, broken trust, just plain busy, busyness of life. This one's interesting, time with family, time with friends. Isn't that true that sometimes time with family, which is supposed to be a good thing, sometimes drains you? Don't put up your hand, but ask yourself this question. How many of you have been in that situation where you were with a family and they finally went home and you went, oh, I'm so glad they're gone. Okay, put up your hand. How many of you have experienced that? <laughs> the rest of you are lying. We've all, we've all experienced that. I experience that every time the grandkids come over. And, <laughs> and we're cleaning the carpet and fixing all the broken stuff. Uh, so, you know, time of family, time of friends. Here's another one that depletes people is time alone. Now, let's go to the other side of the equation. Okay, we could all come up with a very long list of things that drain us. But what is it, and here's where I want you to think about this, what is it that fills your tank? And this is, I think, unique to every person. Certain things fill some persons and don't the other, and you have to figure out, what are the things sucking the life out of me? And what are the things that actually fill my tank? All right, so here, here let's look at the list again. Time with family, time with friends, time alone. It all depends on whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. The extroverts actually get charged up by being with people, and the introverts actually need that time alone. So that's gonna be determined by your personality. Uh, you know, recreational activities, emotional support, rest or sleep sometimes is all you need. A vacation is always a good idea. Uh, successes in life, the personal successes, exercises, fun experiences. And I'm not gonna go and prescribe any one of these things. I just want you to take one moment and I want you to think about this, and I want you to ask yourself this question, what drains my tank and what fills it? And then I want to encourage you, start filling your tank. And don't allow it to get so drained. And I'm telling you, if you can do this one little exercise and figure this out and begin to set aside time for yourself and for your family to fill your emotional tank, I think we can get all these people off anti-anxiety drugs. That's what I believe, just my guess. All right, so I'm gonna take another little turn. 
Some of you believe me. Another little turn here, and I'm going to go a little deeper into this whole thing called emotion and emotional health. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the term emotional intelligence? How many of you are familiar with that term? Most people are familiar with it today. The term is actually, in social science, actually relatively new. It was coined by social scientists in the, in the year 1990. By 1995, the first book was written on it by the same name. And that very same year, emotional intelligence, or sometimes called EQ, your emotional quotient, actually made the front page of Time Magazine. And they realized that this was a big thing. And the, and the deal is this, they love to contrast the IQ, the intelligence quotient, with the EQ, the emotional quotient. And we always used to measure people's competency by their IQ, how smart they were. Here's the problem with the IQ. They say that your emotional quotient or your emotional capability or potential doesn't actually change. And you were born with a certain IQ. Einstein was born with a 240. I'm born with a 239. I'm not sure what you've got. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, average, the average being 100. But your EQ, your emotional quotient, you're born with almost zero. And your emotional quotient, your emotional ability to grow is something that you have to stir and grow because it's not innate, like a lot of other things we've been talking about this. And the place where it grows the best, are you ready for this, is the family. So I want to take a couple of minutes, and this will be a real crash course in this, and I apologize for going through this way too fast, but if you are interested in emotional intelligence, I'm telling you, there's tons of books on it, tons of stuff online, and you can go read up and get further information. But here's the crash course. So here's the five aspects of emotional intelligence. And uh, I love the fact that self-awareness is the keystone. If, if you don't remember anything else I say about emotional intelligence, I want you to remember this, is, is self-awareness. And self-awareness is the key to emotional intelligence. And that is being aware of who you are, what your strengths and your weaknesses are, your emotions, and here's the most important part of it, and understanding how other people actually see you. So a lot of times we don't know how people actually see us. And that's a lack of self-awareness is what that is. I'll tell you how prevalent it is in our society. People don't really know who they are. 93% of people say they are an above average driver. <laughs> is that even possible? No, it's not possible. 73% think they are above average intelligence, like, like me. I'm one of those people. Here's what I find, which is a nice contrast. 33% of people think they're an above average golfer. So actually, you're a better golfer than you think. Or, maybe more accurately, everybody's a terrible golfer. I think it's more, more to the point. And so if I was to give you the poster boy for lack of self-awareness, you know who would it be? Michael Scott from The Office. I mean, that was the whole gag, his lack of self-awareness and how inappropriate he was all the time. And I love this scene. His boss, David, says, what do you think your greatest strength is as a manager? He says, why don't I tell you my greatest weaknesses are? It's, I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I get too invested in my job. <laughs> David looks at him and says, okay, then what are your greatest weaknesses? He says, or my strength, sorry, let me rephrase it. So what then are your greatest strengths? And Michael says, well, my weaknesses are my strengths. 
<laughs> and I have had people literally say this to me. That's what's so funny about this. And so self-awareness is this, the, the cornerstone, the keystone of emotional intelligence. And then it goes out from there. Then there is uh, social awareness. See, and self-awareness is recognizing your own strengths and weaknesses and your own emotions. Social awareness is when you recognize other people. And to put it in sort of the vernacular, it's being able to read the room. You can read the mood of people. And when you're talking to people, you know how they're feeling. And then as a result of that, you are able to alter how you interact with those people because you know how they're feeling in that moment. Jesus had great social awareness. And it says, and perceiving their thoughts, he said. He knew how they were reacting to what he was saying and what he was doing. And that is social awareness. And then there's this really important one called empathy. Empathy is not the same as sympathy. Don't get them confused. Empathy is understanding how someone feels. The best way, again, using the vernacular, is to put yourself in their shoes. How would I feel if I was in their shoes? And there's a lot of people in our culture who are no good at empathy, particularly sociopaths and narcissists. They're really bad. And so if you're one of them, you, know, you might as well just stop listening right now. But, but for the rest of us, we can work on this. And how would I feel if I was in their shoes? Fascinating that the Proverbs talks about this. Look at this verse out of Proverbs 18. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Doesn't care what the other person thinks. Doesn't care. Doesn't care to understand or have empathy. And then the fourth thing is self-regulation. And self-regulation is this. It's you're able to regulate your emotions. And it doesn't mean you're, you suppress them, but you know when it's time to show them and when there's times you need to rule over your emotions. Again, it's in the Proverbs. This is what King Solomon says. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. You know it's not appropriate to just blow off every time you feel something. Everybody doesn't care about your every thought and every emotion, and there are times and prudence for you to just shut up right, and hold it back. And so self-regulation is being able to control and to know when not to react in a situation and not to be bitter and not to be angry and how to forgive another person. So that's self-regulation. The last thing is self-motivation. And self-motivation is exactly what it sounds like. You don't need external motivators. You don't need people to be telling you what to do and what not to do. And you don't let circumstances determine it either. You're going to be motivated because there's something within you, emotional strength, that motivates you to move along. And you'll even allow for delayed gratification and work hard for something knowing you don't need instant results. So I told you that was going to be a snapshot. I probably lost some of you five minutes ago. But you can learn more and more about this. But I'm going to give you an illustration from Scripture today. Because if there was one person that had exceptional emotional intelligence above and beyond anybody of his day, it was Jesus. You ever notice that about Jesus? That he was good at everything? I don't know. Do you think being the son of God helped somehow? Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, he's this fantastic example of emotional intelligence. And I want to tell you a story that you all know. I've told many times. But I don't want to look at it from a moral or a spiritual perspective. I want to look at it from an emotional one. And the story, and I want you to put yourself in this scene for a moment, is the woman caught in adultery. 
And I want you to imagine you are in the presence of that crowd. And, the, and I want you to think about the emotions going on here. And don't think about the message, just think about the emotions. So first of all, imagine the woman caught in adultery. She's been surrounded by a group of men in the city and they've picked up stones and they're about to stone her. What is the emotion of that woman at that moment? Tell me. She, terror, fear. Horror, she's about to lose her life. Now, it says she was caught in the act of the adultery, so then, therefore, what is the emotion of the man who's not standing in that circle? Relief, he's getting away with this. We don't even know where he is. What is the emotion of these men that have gathered around this poor woman with stones in their hands, ready to pelt her to death? What is their emotion? Self-righteous anger self-righteous judgment and criticism and a more holy-than-thou attitude. Would you agree with that? And so you have this absolute powder keg of emotion. I, there's one more group of people I don't think we thought about. How about the women and the children that are standing around that crowd? How are they feeling in this moment? Imagine yourself. Put you, how are they feeling? How are the rest of the women feeling? Tell me. They're anxious. They're nervous. They're perplexed. They're probably wound up and not hoping this thing is not going to happen. Do they really want to see their, their, kids, their kids to see some woman be stoned to death and blood running down the street? I don't think so. So then Jesus happens by and walks into this absolute emotional powder keg. And they see him. And they say, well, you know, the law of Moses says such a one should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? So what does he do? He de escalates the situation. First thing he does is he starts with his posture and he hunkers down. What is, what is he doing? He's taking a defensive or at least a neutral posture. He isn't standing up. He's not pointing his finger. He's not yelling at them. And he hunkers down. And he starts drawing in the ground. And, he's, and he knows he's in a tough situation because the emotions are so raw in this moment. And anything he says could determine the outcome of this day. Yet he cannot deny what the law actually says. So he has to deal with this on, a, on another level entirely. And he very, in a very calm manner, he doesn't yell us. He merely says to these men that have asked this question, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Soft answer turns away wrath, the scripture says. And he answers this softly thing, and he makes them think. And I want you to think about something. Does he have to convince every one of those men? All he has to do is convince a few of them. All he has to do, because he's saying, Can you, you, you can't think so seriously. You can't think of anything you've done wrong? That's what he's asking, right? You can't think of anything that is worthy of punishment in your life that you got away with? And so then one man drops a stone. Because it said, from the greatest to the least, or from the eldest to the youngest, they started to drop their stones. And a few of these men realized, I can't stone this woman. I, I, I don't have the credibility to stone this woman. I am a sinner myself. And he drops a stone, and another drops a stone, and then the men see these men dropping the stone, and everyone, he didn't have to convince everybody. And what he did was he defused this moment with exceptional emotional intelligence. And you know where this emotional intelligence is birthed more than anywhere else is in the family. And that's why it's incumbent upon you, the onus is upon you as the parent and the grandparent and the uncle or the aunt or whoever you are, to begin to demonstrate emotional intelligence because whatever you are demonstrating is going to be replicated in your children. And if, if they see you as emotionally weak and pathetic, they're going to act that way. And I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. 
It's interesting that the very, very, very first family in history, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the first two sons, and there's this moment in that family where Cain was a, was a, a, a grain farmer and Abel was a sheep far, farmer and they both made sacrifices to God. And God was more pleased with the blood sacrifice of Abel than he was with the grain sacrifice of Cain. And Cain was mad about it. And go read the story. It's in Genesis chapter 4. God comes and, and pleads with Cain and says, Cain, why are you so angry? And he says, because you liked Abel's sacrifice more than I did. And then God said this. Go look it up. God said, you, are, you will be accepted if you can rule over it. Rule over what? Rule over what? His emotions. His emotions. A wise man rules over his heart, rules over his emotions. And he says, look, Cain, if you can get a hold of this, if you can reel this thing in, you can be accepted too. So what did Cain do? Who <laughs> remembers? He went out and killed his brother. <laughs> Didn't work. I mean, God tried. And you see, that whole moment in Cain's life was really boils down to a lack of emotional intelligence. And so we can all grow that way, and the family is that place where that happens. I'm going to tell you a story that happened to us. Our kids are big sporting people. And uh, one of my daughters, I won't tell you which daughter, uh, she was playing basketball, and she was out in the court, and uh, someone fouled her. And it's a physical game, <laughs> women's basketball. Tough game, man. I wouldn't want to play it. And, uh, and so anyway, she got fouled, and she, she got mad, and she got frustrated. And then she started, like, mouthing off even to her own players and telling them to step up and stuff. And then she, she came off at the half. Kathy got up out of the stands. I didn't know what she was going to do. She walked down to the bench. She turned to her and said, if you don't get a hold of yourself, if you don't reel it in and get control of yourself, I'm pulling you out of this game and we're going home. And my daughter just looked at her like this. Said, you can't win a game playing like that. You can't win a game acting like that. That's why you lose. When you lose your cool, you lose everything. And you're going to lose this game. But more, more importantly, I don't want any daughter acting like this. <laughs> so my, doctor, my daughter just let it go, went back out, played like a champ, played like a sport, and learned an incredible lesson that day. You see, the family is the place. We've got to start addressing this stuff. You model it, and you teach it, and you correct it when you need to. You know, our, for the most part, our, our daughters actually really liked us. As long as we never asked them to do anything, gave them any advice of any kind, did the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, or breathed the wrong way. And other than that, they were good with us. <laughs> All right, so, so the three levels of recreation in the family are spirit, soul, and body. We've done spirit, we've done soul. I want to take just a minute about the body. You know, part of recreation has to be physical recreation. And, you know, in the times of the Bible, they didn't actually need to get out and exercise because every day was exercise. They, they worked manual labor. Like, if you were, building, if you were a slave building the, the pyramids, I'm pretty sure you didn't go to the gym at the end of the day. You, you didn't need to go to the gym. You were good, right? And even the early Christians, I mean, they got lots of exercise because they used to take them to the Colosseum and throw them to the lions, and they had to run away. And so, you know, there was plenty of exercise. Not to mention this, they walked everywhere. But that's not what our world looks like today. 
We have this immensely sedentary culture where people sit at their desks all day and then they get in their car and they drive home and they walk 12 feet from their house or from their car to their house and plunk down in the big lazy boy where they sit for seven hours watching television or in the case of the, the, the children online. And we are doing something to ourselves. We are literally killing ourselves. And I, I'm gonna show you a stat on this because one of the biggest crises in North America at the time is obesity in, in children. And look at, the, look at the chart. It is skyrocketing every single generation because people are not physically active. And a lot of people don't think the Bible talks about physical activity. Well, go read the story of Paul, the writings of Paul, because Paul talked a lot about it. And he said, you know that everybody who runs in a race all run? And he says, run therefore that you would win the race. And when you fight, fight that you would win the fight. He says, therefore I discipline my body and bring it into subjection that I would not be disqualified. So Paul was using a spiritual a metaphor but for, uh, about spirituality, but he was talking about physical things. He says, look, I have to discipline my body. I have to bring it into subjection. And you know, when it comes to physical activity, especially today, you kind of have to discipline your body, don't you? You know, I don't know about you. I don't really like working out. I mean, Matt, our youth pastor, he loves working out. The guy, you look at him, he goes every day and he works out. He actually enjoys it. I don't like it. I have to bring my body into subjection. Every time I work out, I have to have an argument with my body. I have to take authority over it. And I say, body, let's go work out. And my body says, I don't feel like it today. To which I say, you never feel like it. And he says, what are you talking about? We worked out yesterday. I say, no, we didn't. That was last week. Well, it feels like it was yesterday. Why don't we go tomorrow? Oh, really? You're, you're, we're gonna go, you think we're going to go tomorrow? Do you want to look like the Goodyear blimp? Come on. Oh, what are you going to do? Body shame me? Come on, man. And so, so I, I mean, don't, don't, don't look at me like you haven't been through this. So, you know, one day I decided I was going to take up running. I thought, I'm not a runner. Pastor Steve, he loves to run. I don't love running. I hate running. But I thought, I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to go running. So I thought, I better start slow. So here's what I did. I ran for a while, walked for a while, ran for a while, walked for a while, ran for a while, walked for a while, ran for a while, walked for a while. And when I got to the end of the driveway, I turned around and did it all the way back to the door. <laughs> I'm having a little fun. But you know what? When we talk about sports, I, I don't know if you know this. If you say I'm into sports and that means you watch them on television, that's not really being into sports. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was like my friend Brian Warren. He has two great cup rings. He used to say this. You know what football is? It's a game where you have 24,000 people sitting in the stands who desperately need some exercise watching 24 people on the field who desperately need a rest. <laughs> And you know, we have to bring in some physical activity in, into our families. And you know, the amount of time we're spending online and on the couch and, uh, and doing these things, and, I, and it doesn't, I'm not saying you have to be into sports. There's other ways to have physical activity and we're gonna have to do something. I think the Lord demands it of us. You know why? Because know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and your body is God's temple and we better start taking care of that temple, ours and our children's temple, because God requires it. I had to wait for that clap because you didn't want to give it to me. 
So, so in conclusion, let me say this. It's a three-ring circus. It's relationship. It's responsibility. But let's not forget the recreation that builds us up spirit, soul, and body. And in the words of Abigail Van Buren, and I'll leave you with this, if you want your kids to turn out well, spend twice as much time on them and half as much money. Let's stand together. All righty. So let's take a moment, every head bowed, every eye closed, and we're going to talk about the spiritual thing for a moment. Because in a room this size, there's definitely people that have not invited Jesus into their life to be their Lord and Savior. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And this is the most important thing you can ever do for yourself or for your family, is to have a relationship with Jesus that will change and transform you from the inside out. And so I'm not going to call you forward or single you out or ask you to say anything publicly and every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody's looking around. But if you're not sure you're right with Jesus and if you're not sure you're on your way to heaven when you leave this planet, I want you to just slip up your hand. I'm not going to call you forward, but by doing so, you're saying, yes, I want to make that decision. Today, I want to be a Christian. I'm just going to take a moment. If you're online, you can just click that hand button on your screen. Anybody this morning would say yes in the room. Anybody this morning would say yes online. So let's pray with those who have said yes in their heart today. And whether you raised your hand or didn't, I want you to say this prayer with me if you're inclined. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I'm really kind of a wreck, messed up in so many ways. But you cared enough about me to die on the cross for me. You washed away my sins. You rose again on the third day. And you live to be my Lord. And I live to be your child. And you change me from the inside out. And I'm on my way to heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we?